Well, it would be a, a huge uh, help to me uh, and to you if you just uh, turn back in your Bibles to that uh, second reading that Tricia read for us, so 1 John chapter 4, it's page 1,227 in the church Bibles, 1,227, 1 John chapter 4, that's where we're going to be spending these few minutes this morning. Uh, but let me say, uh, first of all, uh, thank you to, to Paul for inviting me back. It is great to be back with you. Uh, and uh, all the kind of encouragements you'd hope for when you've uh, been away for several years in a church. Plenty of familiar faces, some of you sitting in the same seats as when I was last here, uh, and also plenty of unfamiliar faces. Um, without either, you would be terribly worried, wouldn't you? Um, well, 1 John chapter 4, let's uh, just spend some moments here. And if this was Saturday afternoon and 1 John chapter 4, it would be a wedding, wouldn't it? It's one of the great uh, wedding favourites of uh, passages that people like there. I love it when people ask me to speak on this passage at a wedding. Uh, once we've got past verse 7, but, you know, you can imagine the scene, that the married couple, they've they're just sort of tied the knot, so to speak, and you start at verse 7, dear friends, let's love one another. It's hardly an original thought for a wedding day, is it? You don't imagine the, the guests are left on the edge of their seats. I wonder what the vicar's going to come up with next. Uh, and if you view all weddings through sort of heart-shaped lenses, then you're probably already beginning to think how soppy. Uh, but John isn't writing through rose-tinted specks of a wedding day, and he's not expecting us to wade through sort of sentimental slush and treacle. He's actually writing to say, how can I be sure... I'm a gospel man, a gospel woman. How can I be sure I'm a gospel man, a gospel woman, where I'm part of a church family, where a group of people have left because they seem so much more spiritual than we are? And you and I might be reaching out for Christianity Explored or some kind of gospel presentation when John starts talking about love. And you might groan, and if you're old enough to remember those Daily Mail cartoons of love is that they sort of featured every day, you're wondering what John's doing to reduce it to some kind of wet emotion. He's actually got other things to talk about, but we wouldn't start here. And then you check yourself, it is John. And there's probably more to it than that. And we're right, there is. So look at what he's actually got to say here. He begins by saying this, love is... God's characteristic and ours if we're gospel people. Love is God's characteristic and ours. That's verses 7 and 8. Uh, look, verse 7, dear friends, let's love one another for love comes from God. That's its origins. God is the source. See, it's not just a quality he possesses. It's not just one of the things he does. You know, she does sport, we watch films, you know, he makes money, God does love. He's not just saying God loves, he's saying God is the source of all true love. Love and God go together. This kind of love and God go together. And that's massive. I mean, stop and think about it for a moment. God's nature is to love, is to think outside himself. The person who steers this universe by nature thinks outside of himself. 
Don't you want sometimes to thank God for being God? The hand that's on the tiller of the universe is not yours, it's not mine. It thinks outside of himself. There are some things that are, are, are true of God and they're only true of God, aren't they? Now, being all-knowing and all-seeing. But other things are, are passed on like family characteristics. I mentioned that uh, Lucy and Tom uh, had our, our second grandchild just born a, a few months back. And of course, once he's born, everyone does the sort of who's he look like? Oh, doesn't he look like his mother? Doesn't he look like his father? And those who think he looks plain ugly say he looks just like his grandfather. Uh, but, you know, there are characteristics that are passed on. Well, love is one of those characteristics that God does pass on. See how verse 7 goes on? Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. You're either born of God or you don't love. If you see this love, there's no need to sort of turn it upside down and look for the made in Taiwan, Mark. And no, no, there's only one source. And if there's no sign of that love, there'll be no life from God there. I can't be born into God's family and have none of this likeness. Dear friends, let us love one another. It comes with the new nature. The new nature is not perfect nature, but it's a sign of gospel men and women. Now, I'm seriously, I'm not trying to go soppy on you. I'm just trying to stop you going soppy on God. I'm trying to free us from that kind of consumerism that infects churches where people think of God and church, uh, that they're all about making me happy, and then you wonder why you find them disappointing. C.S. Lewis once wrote this, I I didn't go to Christianity to make me happy. I always thought a bottle of port would do that. (laughs) You might change it for a six-pack or whatever you like. Uh, And Lewis went on, "If uh, if you want a religion to make you comfortable, I wouldn't recommend Christianity. See, the world says, dear friends, let's love ourselves. John says, dear friends, let's love one another. When we begin to show a lack of self-interest, when we begin to show other interest, we'll know God's at work in us. Love is God's characteristic. And ours, if we're gospel people. Love, love secondly, is God's mission. And ours if we're gospel people. And that's verses 9 to 11. See, when you look at what John means by love, of course, all ideas of uh, soppiness quickly disappear, don't they? Uh, Look at verse 9. This is how God shared his love among us. See, put aside other ideas of love and certainly don't reduce it to just talk or emotion, never mind a hug in. This love was demonstrated in action. And my wife Claire, birthdays, Christmas time, always gets a tube of Smarties. She does like Smarties. If that's all she gets, then it doesn't matter how much I talk about it, it's the thought that counts. She is entitled to ask what thought. But 
God doesn't leave room to speculate. You see how verse 9 goes? This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world. It's the kind of love that gives more than you can reasonably afford. See, when it comes to love, whether it's love of wife or friends, family, colleagues, neighbours, what do you begrudge the most? Is it the money? I mean, sooner or later, love will hit us in the pocket. I read one of those newspaper articles earlier in the summer about uh, uh, what it costs to have children. You know, the average cost of bringing up a child. I don't know how they really work it out. The figure's astronomical. I kind of think, where does anyone get that money from? I can only dream of having it. And then I remembered I've had children. That's why I can only dream of having it. Yeah, is, it is it the money that, that worries us? Is it time? Probably it's not so much quantity of time. It's just that love keeps calling always at the most inconvenient time, doesn't it? And just when it's going to cut across all the carefully laid plans I've got for that day, that week, just when I've settled down in front of the telly and there is something good on and it's the only night I've got in. Or, Or is it the way love can leave us being vulnerable and and open to being taken advantage of. I don't know about you, I hate it when people take advantage of me and make me look naive or or weak. God didn't back out of that point though. God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. As I said earlier, I've got one, only one son. Uh, I'm your favourite son, as he likes to describe himself, especially if his sisters are listening in. Um, yeah, the idea of giving myself, I'd back off that many a time. But to give Mark, actually that's far harder. He gave his one and only son that we might live through him. See, this love has done something vital, not just something sentimental. We might live, and we don't exactly have the kind of CVs of God's greatest fans. It's easy to love those who love us, or relatively easy. It's very hard to love those who do not love us. God's love was demonstrated to those who were his enemies to those of us who only paid lip service to him, to those of us who took all his benefits and the blessings he gave us and ignored him, to those who tried to bargain and barter with him as if we were something we were not. Uh, A good friend was telling me of a a remarkable testimony he heard this summer of someone converted in a prison uh, and on that night when the person first came to speak with God, he began like this. He said, you owe me God, I'm an honest drug dealer. That we, people like that, might live through him. This love's radical. This is love, verse 10. Not that we love God, that would be understandable. That would be deserved and merited. That wouldn't begin to reflect the love God demonstrated. This is love, not that we love God, not that the unlovely love the God who cared for them and gave to them and blessed them. Not that we love God, but that He, He loved us. Sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. See, this love is love for the unlovely. 
This love goes way beyond meeting us halfway. This love is not blind to wrongdoing either. This love recognises our wrongs. Spots them, acts with justice over them and astonishingly manages not only to act with justice, not only to point the finger, but to act in rescue at the same time by taking the judgment we deserve on himself. Now, I know that's just basic gospel truth. It's the basic gospel truth we remember at communion because we forget it so quickly. You know, almost every church you'll find somewhere a a person haunted by their failures, despairing of atoning for them, living driven but hopeless lives. And you'll meet others who are still spurred on by the, the heroism of putting things right. Forget it. Forget it. Both are turning their backs on this love. It's not there for us to copy in the sense of atoning for our own sins or anyone else's. We can't. Though the love John's talking about takes our sins seriously pays an extraordinary price for our rescue, will view any other human being through those lenses. Now, watch how he goes on, verse 11. Dear friends, since God so loved us, here's the follow-through, here's the application, we also ought to love one another. How can I rely on God's love for my salvation and not show love to others because they're not my type, they're too far gone, it's inconvenient, they're wrong morally or doctrinally. You know, as if we just love those who agree with us. Do I want Christ to forgive my infinite offence, a sin so important and awful that... Even God had to go to those lengths, the cross, to clear me. While I remain unwilling to forgive someone who's wronged me. Do you want Christ to suffer the consequences of your sins? While you insist whoever wronged you must themselves suffer the consequences of theirs. There are some unlovely people in uh, nearly every church, aren't there? I mean, we might as well be real. I don't just mean limp characters and the awkward squad. We've got those as well. Uh, But there are unlovely people around too. And if you've been around the church scene for very long, you don't need me to tell you that, that there are feuds in many churches. People who speak as if they're brothers and sisters in Christ, but don't talk to one another. It's got to stop. It's got to stop. If there's going to be this love, And if there isn't, well, God's not there. We can't declare Christ's work on the cross as the entry to his kingdom, and we'll do that in a moment at communion. And then live and relate as if we've added, provided you're my type of Christian. The very last thing I'm depending on is God being picky. 
picky love is not God's love. There was a a church plant uh, like so many of them, uh, largely made up of 20s and 30s who'd moved to to bring the gospel to another area, students, mostly young professionals, and uh, just sort of often lurking around the streets outside uh, their meeting place, there was a scruff, homeless, trampy uh, guy. He'd met a number of the folk on the street, and one Sunday, uh, the service wasn't far underway, he came through the back doors, walked down the centre aisle, right to the front, which showed he wasn't a churchgoer regularly and certainly not an Anglican, uh, and uh, uh, sat on the floor in front of the front pew. You could almost feel the tension rising. You know, you can imagine it, can't you? How do we treat him? What do we do with this? And then the, the church warden gets out of his seat at the back, walks to the front, every eye on him as to what's he going to do, how do we handle this guy, comes to the front row, sits down alongside the tramp, spends the rest of the service there. What a lesson in love. Uh, Don't reduce love to being nice, by the way. I think of the sharp banker who tore a strip off a guy who'd uh, uh, acted way out of line in church. And uh, anger, yeah, there was anger in there, but much of it righteous because the guy had really hurt and wronged someone else. But you watched him over the weeks and months that went on as he nailed the guy for his uh, wrong behavior, uh, put his arm around him, showed him what repentance would look like, uh, met with him, read the Bible with him, prayed for him, loved him. Love is God's mission. And ours if we're gospel people. So you see, as John rounds off in verse 12, he says this, no one has ever seen God. Which is a familiar phrase, isn't it? We've heard that before. John's written it before. The end of that introduction to his gospel. No one's ever seen God. It was the favourite excuse then and now. So, you know, you can't expect me to believe. How can I know God? No one has ever seen God, he wrote in his Gospel, but the one and only Son has made him known. Jesus has revealed him. And as he comes to write this letter, there's a sense in which it's too late for that now. You can't see Jesus anymore. He's not walking the earth anymore. And John has to end this one differently. No one has ever seen God, he says, verse 12. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. I can't see Jesus, but I can see his church. I can see his people. I can see God's love in the way they treat each other. I've um, been on holiday since the Olympics ended, the last two or three weeks. We just, uh, before we came up here, uh, we just had 36 hours back home trying to sort of catch up and clear the desk. And uh, I slipped into one staff meeting we were having. I said to the folk who were running the church while I'm away, I said, you you run this, I'm not really here. Uh, And uh, 
we had a bit of time just helping the folk who were teaching the Bible today back there. And then just at the end, there was about uh, a, a few minutes as they caught up on uh, some of the individuals in the church family. And, you know, our staff team, I mean, I guess like, uh, like every church staff team, really, that they're made up of folk, plenty of energy and drive and ideas. They, they've all got their own responsibilities, their own ministry area they lead and organize and and I'm the old man they're all in their 20s and 30s and 40s Um, and as they talked at the end they talked about people none of them in a sense affecting their own particular ministries the 89 year old who'd been moved from one hospital to another because she had a stroke and back again so that one of them could make sure they could visit her this weekend the, the musician whose mother had died, and I saw Rico Tice, the evangelist, just putting a note in his book. He's always putting notes in his book. But this one was, was just a reminder to him to send a card to the guy. Uh, someone else who talked with uh, a couple who have a seven-year-old girl and she's severely autistic uh, and hard to handle. And they were talking about how they could actually look after her better in the Sunday school. And the fear that had come on their faces when they opened the conversation until they realized it really was how to look after a better. And the father had said, listen, church is the only place we can bring her among adults and feel safe. And he thought, yeah, there are signs of love coming through. We don't pull it off all the time that Olympics time when we were welcoming people in to to, to watch with us uh, and so on. One person who was invited in on the street uh, uh, looked up and said, yeah, I've been here a couple of times. I didn't find it very welcoming. It's hard to go anywhere when that's been someone's experience, isn't it? But if there is the authenticity of that love, which is the heart of God's mission. It speaks so powerfully. I mean, to a culture that is wary of persuasive personalities, a culture that is hostile to absolute truth, offended by normative uh, values and morals, it's still touched still awakened, still convicted, convinced by such authentic and embracing love. A culture that's attracted to and then broken by individualism still has a real yearning for genuine community where you can be real and you don't have to pretend to fit in And you can be welcomed and accepted and loved and belong. And you see, a communion service is not about pretending or conforming. It's about being loved and loving and discovering the love of God shown in Christ. May we know that.